is reflecting, of course, on the significant and dramatic turnaround in Israel's history. You remember, they had been exiled 70 years in Babylon. You recall that they had lived within the iron grip of this great superpower. And that, humanly speaking, they seemed incapable, without hope of escape. But the psalmist recalls their freedom from slavery. How through divine intervention, God had miraculously changed the picture, liberated them, made them free men and women. And as the psalmist recollects this, he says it was wonderful. It was like a dream. You know, we didn't just smile as we were walking along the road in our groups homeward. We laughed. We didn't just speak as we walked home. We sang. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues with songs of joy. That's what you do, isn't it? When something amazing and miraculous happens to you. You become hysterically happy. Maybe you saw the the story last week, of the lady who believed her husband had been killed, kidnapped and killed in the country of Nigeria. She had even told her children, quote, that daddy had died and gone to heaven. And you can imagine the shock, the surprise, the joy, when two days later she received a phone call and on the other end of the phone line was her husband. She said in the newspaper, when I heard his voice, I was hysterical. It's me, he said. Calm down, I've been released. It was unbelievable. We've been grieving about him in the morning and going over memories. It was unbelievable. Unbelievable. That's how these people felt in this psalm. And it was so amazing that in fact even the surrounding nations could see it. It was the talk of the town. Even the pagan nations couldn't deny what God had done for the people of God. Then it was said among the nations, says the psalmist, the Lord has done great things for them. And if the pagan nations could say it, how much more should the people of God say it? And they do. The Lord has done great things for us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let me ask you this evening, Are we saying it? Are we saying it? The Lord has done great things for us. Because you know, don't you, that we, on this side of the cross, have even more reason to be thankful. We are not simply saved from physical exile. We have been rescued, each one of us, from spiritual exile. Not just being snatched from a faraway land, but from a place far from God. On the very fringe of a lost eternity. Can we not say, the Lord has done great things for us. As we look back over salvation history, and as we look back over church history. Why, even the history of this church. You know, I was uh, contacting this week Ian Balfour, who's writing a book about the history of Charlotte Chapel. We're going to release it on the run-up to the 200th anniversary. I said, Ian, could you give me any examples of some remarkable works of God in this church over the years? And he gave me a folder full of extracts. 
just one of them this evening, there was a postcard sent to the Baptist Union in 1905. They wrote out to all the churches in Scotland to ask what God was doing. And over 40 churches immediately wrote back with things that the Lord was doing all over Scotland. And on the postcard that Charlotte Chapel sent, it said this, Revival services have been nightly since 1st January. I think this was written in the end of March. And a large number of people have professed faith in Christ. The attendances have been very large, especially on Sunday evenings, when the church has been filled. Every available place, including the pulpit steps. Great things have been done, but greater are to follow. Since the expectation there. On Thursday, 16th March, a combined revival meeting and baptismal service were held. Ten were baptized. And after his address, the pastor made an appeal to Christians present who had professed faith in Christ, but not in baptism, by rising. And over 50 stood up. In addition, there were several cases of conversion. The whole service was one of the most impressive ever held in Charlotte Chapel. A little footnote also amazed me. During that period, this hall was so full on Sunday nights that they sent around four to 500 people down Princess Street, marching, singing, sharing the gospel with people. To quote William Kemp, the pastor of the time, so that the saints present would get outside and make room for the sinners. Fellow believers, I read that not for nostalgia, but because recollection increases expectation. So many revivals in the church, if you read the history, you find that people were reading about revivals. And it raised their expectations. And they began to do the second thing, petition, pray, which we've been focusing on today. See, expectation builds not only through memories of the past, but prayer in the present. And we begin to pray bigger prayers than we've prayed before. Sweeping, sizable prayers like verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Revive us like streams in the Negev. What a huge prayer that is. He prays, notice, first of all, for the whole people. Restore our fortunes. Revive us. Who's the us? It's the people of Israel in its entirety. Because you see, only some had returned to the land of Israel. All Israel was free to return, but most stayed in the land of Babylon. And so the psalmist prays, bring them all home. Gather them all in. He's praying for the whole people. And his prayer gets even bigger because he's also praying for a wholesale turnaround. Restore, the beginning of verse 4, can be translated turn back. We sometimes use the word repent. These people needed to turn back physically. And they needed to turn back spiritually. They remained in exile. Not because the Babylonians were chaining them down, but because sin was. They were comfortable in their Babylonian surroundings. It was a nice place. Exactly what many unbelievers say today as the reason why they don't come to Christ because they know it will cost them something 
It's a dangerous road to the promised land. You know, someone might attack us on the way. And therefore, the psalmist understands that this really needs a miraculous move of God. That's why he prays in this way, restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev. The Negev was the dry, parched desert in the south of Israel. It's a place where there was little rain. But just occasionally, heavy rain on the mountaintops would create a flash flood in the valley. Almost miraculous. You know, if you're walking through this desert, you're not expecting a downpour. And the psalmist says, this is what we need. The hearts of these people are so dry. They are so dead. They need the life-giving water. And isn't that what we need today? We need God. We don't need another program. We need God to move, to work. If we could do it alone, we could give up on the prayer meetings in the church. But we can't. And so here's the thing I've been asking myself this week. Do we pray for spiritual floods? Or do we pray just for a few drops? Sizable prayers or safe prayers? Small prayers. When I grew up in church, I remember it was a common phrase at the time. People said, your God is too small. Maybe you've heard that expression. Perhaps sometimes our prayers are too small. Our prayers are too small. Do we think that praying to God for flash floods revives a city? A nation is a little too optimistic? Unrealistic? Read the Jonah story and skip the big fish and go to the big city at the end where God turned a hundred thousand people to him. God can do it. But what are our expectations? But there's another side to this more briefly, but no less important. Let me ask you a second question. First of all, are you expectant? But secondly, are you employed? Are you employed? I don't mean uh, in a day job, in a paid job. I mean, are you employed in God's service? Are you rolling up your sleeves? In service to God. Seems to me perhaps that most of us fall into one camp more than the other, perhaps. Either we're more the expectant types, and we love to do sketch drawings and have prayer meetings about all that God might do. We love to dream. And then others of us, well, you know, we're the get it done type. Just tell us what to do, we'll do it. But in actual fact, both elements are commended in this psalm. We must be prayers and plodders. We must expect God to work and also get our heads down and get things done. And of course, the farmer is the perfect picture of this dynamic. The farmer depends on God. He knows that ultimately only God can bring life, growth, harvest, 
But he also does his part in planting and cultivating and harvesting. And notice two things about this. It's a costly labor. It is a costly work that the farmer is engaged in. It doesn't say merely, those who sow, but those who sow in tears. Of course, it's not speaking of an external reality. He's not physically planting tears in the ground. It's an expression of the farmer's internal anguish. This is tough. This is hard work. Farming methods weren't very advanced in these days. The climate was very hot and arid. The soil was often very poor and thin. And through the long winter, through the dry springs, through the long hot summer, a seed is only just beginning to sprout, the farmer might have wondered, is the harvest coming? And then at last the autumn rains would arrive, just in the nick of time. But oh, there were months of weeping. Now, dear friends, I don't know how else to say this, but this is a picture of Christian ministry. Even Paul the Apostle, who spoke so often of joy in the book of Philippians, who commanded, rejoice in the Lord always, spoke of his ministry in 2 Corinthians, you remember, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I don't know how to explain that to you unless you've been involved in ministry. You'll know that experience. It's hard. And it's hopeful. It's tough. And it's thrilling. It aches some days. And it's all inspiring. And sometimes all in the same day. And if you want an easy life, let me tell you how to do it. Don't get involved in ministry. Don't plug into church. Don't get involved with people. Whatever you do, it will hurt. And when you leave services, don't share the gospel. Charles Spurgeon once said that winners of souls are weepers for souls. Winners are weepers. So if you don't want to be a weeper, thinking of some of the uh, students up at Edinburgh University, with all this controversy over the Pure Course this week. It's a course teaching biblical sexuality. Hit the end evening news last week. Some branding it homophobic. And I was reading comments on the website where Joe Public can give their view and was wondering to myself, how must it feel to be in my first year on CU committee just finding my feet in this ministry thing? And a couple of months in, here are people on this website branding me a bigot. A bigot. Ministry's hard. No wool pulling over the eyes here in this text. And therefore, since sowing involves suffering, I need to ask myself, and every member of this church, everyone also on the fringe of this church, are you prepared, are you ready and willing to pay the price this year. Give another year, maybe another hard year for the gospel, for the kingdom, for the church of Christ. However long we've been at it, I hope the answer will be yes. And that if you are on the fringes of the church, 
that you will transfer from spectator to seed planter. And if you said, why on earth would I do that? Then note, finally, this little promise at the end. Here is the reward for our struggle and effort. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. You see, the hard-working farmer is no fool. He knows that after the pain of sowing and weeding and cultivating, and after the long and hard waiting, harvest comes. Does for the Christian. And when we work and pray in his time, God works too. Exiles return home. Conversions occur. Hearts melt and break. And there's nothing like it in the world to be involved in that. It's like a dream. So, brothers and sisters, those of you who are at the coalface in this church, some of you were mentioned on the screen a few moments ago, what you do is not in vain for God, for Christ. You will reap. You will, notice the certainty, return with songs of joy. It may be in eternity before you truly realize the harvest. But your employment will not be in vain for Christ, for God. William Carey, the missionary to India, has got a very challenging life story. He was employed in a very costly ministry. You may know one of his children died pretty early on. And as a result of that, his wife suffered a breakdown. And she died pretty early on in the field. And Carey's ministry was no picnic. In fact, he struggled not only with the language and the cross-cultural situation, but also with the fact that for seven long years... He shared the gospel with people without a single convert. Not one. I wonder how often in this church, how many years pass without a single conversion. That's what he experienced for seven years. And he there, nevertheless endured and he worked until God began to work a harvest. Churches were founded through Cary. A missionary society was established. A college was opened. And in the end, the Lord did more than Carey could ever ask or imagine. But for his part, for his side of the bargain, Carey understood his responsibilities. You remember his famous dictum. Expect great things from God. It's expectation. And attempt great things for God. That's employment. He wasn't original. He was a great man, but he wasn't original. Psalm 126. Expect. Attempt. Friends, are we expectant? And are we employed? Let's pray.